Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and it is Sunday the 30th of July in the year 2023. I hope wherever you're listening around Australia or around the world, whatever day, whatever time of day you're listening, you're having a wonderful, wonderful day. Of course, for me, it's a wonderful day because after two weeks of not being able to do the Weekend Wrap for various reasons, we are back on the air talking with you about the big news stories that have occurred since Wednesday when Van and I broke down the big news of the week and that are coming up in the week ahead. And of course, what a week ahead we have. It is the end of the winter recess of the federal parliament, and we know that that means that there is a big setup process now for the run-in to the end of the year. There are five big stories that I want to talk about, and then there's a couple of pieces of noise that I want to mention as well. But first, I do want to send my heartfelt condolences to the families of the four air crewmen who are missing after their helicopter crashed in waters close to Hamilton Island during Australian defence exercises just this weekend. This is obviously a very troubling time for those families and for the men and women of the Australian Defence Force who put their lives on the line to protect our Commonwealth I always have a special place in my heart for them. My other mum, Kim, was in the army. I have utmost respect for our defence personnel, both serving and veterans, and believe that we should be treating them with the utmost respect, care, dignity and support when they come out of the defence forces as well. And for the family members of those four service personnel, this will be an incredibly difficult time and just know, as I'm sure all of our listeners support you, we hope that they're found well, we hope that they're found safe, and if that's not the case, please know that this country will continue to support you as you work through the next phase of your lives. Now, moving on to the five big political stories that are coming up this week. First one, education. Now, this was discussed on Insiders today, and I'm not going to talk about university education because there's so much focus in the middle class, mainstream media, billionaire and corporatized media about university education. And it's an important thing. Don't get me wrong. I've got degrees. Van's got degrees. Degrees are an important part of our education system. But probably the most fundamental part of our education system is public education, that is primary and secondary education. If you do not do well in primary and secondary education, it's very hard to get into tertiary education. In fact, if you don't do primary education well, it's very hard to have a population that's trained even in TAFE. You you need to be able to get the basics right. And at the moment in this country, in Australia, in 2023, we have a situation where 98% of our public schools are not funded to the minimum standard. They do not have the basic resources they need. And a listener wrote to us about this very subject. And I'm going to read part of what they wrote. I'm not going to read all of it, and I'm not going to identify the listener because they've shared with us a very personal story about how the underfunding 
of public schools and the bias of conservative governments towards private school institutions has impacted them and their thinking and their family and possibly the future of their children. They say, and I quote, this is now a quote, I went to public schools and my boys currently go to a public primary school and I very much believe in public education. I hate what Howard started with the private school funding, which flourished over the recent nine years of coalition federal governments. Unfortunately, due to this severe underfunding of public schools, our local high school has been run down into the ground with ageing facilities and a bad reputation. Most of the kids from our local primary school still go there and most do well. The kids that do particularly well are those that qualify for academic selective classes or enrichment classes. Anecdotally, these are the kids that have the best teachers and the kids that want to learn. I have one child with ADHD and one with a receptive language disorder. They both need teachers that are not severely overworked and are forced to manage behaviours within the classroom while also trying to teach a very large classroom full of students. I need to work out where to send them to high school and I would love nothing more than to send them to the local public high school. But I need to factor in more than just my ideological beliefs and hip pocket in making this decision. I love your work and podcast. I really appreciate having a podcast to listen to that echoes and articulates exactly how I feel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing what was clearly not an easy thing to write. And as I say, I haven't read the whole message out on air because there are elements of that story that I think are deeply personal for that individual and their family. But it shows the situation that Australians are in. We're going to hear a lot about choice over the coming months and possibly years in this country. We hear about it a lot from the conservative side of politics. What they mean when they talk about choice is choice for wealthy people, the choice for wealthy people to exempt themselves from engaging with everyday working people. That's the choice they mean. They don't mean choices for families like this one. The choice for families like this one is to send their children to a school that doesn't have the funding, doesn't have the resources, or to possibly go into debt to try and get their children the specialised attention and support that they need. That is not a choice. Those are not real choices. Fully funding our schools so that every Australian parent can send their child to a public school knowing they will get the support they need, knowing that the classroom size will be appropriate, knowing that the teachers have the support they need to manage any disruption in the classroom so that every child in this country gets a world-class primary and secondary education and can go on to enjoy a, a, a flourishing, flourishing career in through TAFE or university, both of which are incredibly important parts of addressing our skill shortages in this country. That's the choice. That's how you create choice. If in that framework there are people who still want to send their children to a private school for some ideological reason, they have some perhaps religious belief that requires them to be taught in a particular way, that's entirely the uh, entirely up to those families. It has nothing to do with the Commonwealth or the state. That's when we have real choice. 
when public schools are properly funded, then we can start to talk about choice. Until then, well, 98% of our public schools do not have the minimum resources they require. Families like the one I read out don't have real choice. They certainly don't have control. In fact, there's an element of this message that makes you feel like these are parents who don't have a sense of control, who are worried about their children's future. Our education system is supposed to guarantee, guarantee parents that their child's future will not be compromised by the education they receive, but will be enhanced. And we know that public schools are doing the very best they can. Even in this message, it talks about teachers doing the very best they can, but that they are overworked, that they are understaffed, that they are not supported. So our full solidarity to teachers around the country. And of course, if you are a teacher, you can join your union by going to australianunions.org au slash wow, that's W-O-W. In fact, it doesn't matter where you work, you can join your union through that link, australianunions.org.au slash wow. The other reason why you should join your union is because one of the things that I picked up out of Insiders today was the spokeswoman from the boss's pamphlet, Jennifer Hewitt, once again perpetuated the lie of neoliberalism, once again held true to the blinkered vision of monetarist ideology that suggests that somehow or another the random increases in interest rates are responsible for reducing inflation. Once again, belittled and demeaned the Treasurer of Australia, Jim Chalmers, who made it very clear that there is a three-point plan for addressing inflation in this country, much like Joe Biden's plan for addressing inflation in the United States. They, They mimic each other. In the United States, Joe Biden is bringing down the deficit. America has had a deficit since the Civil War, since the Revolution, I believe. We'll have a deficit probably forever. In Australia, we're focused on having a surplus. We have a surplus that takes money out of the economy. It takes heat out of demand. That's neo-Keynesianism, people. That's what Keynes would want us to be doing. The second thing is you have targeted targeted programs designed to help those most in need or where there is the most productivity benefit to be gained. In the case of Australia, we see investments not just in renewable energy and infrastructure as they have in America, but also investments in supporting the most at need. And we saw Amanda Rishworth on Insiders today talking about how that targeted support has played out. Yes, there has been an increase in job seeker. No, it's not enough to lift people to a decent standard of living. We acknowledge that. Van and I have campaigned on that for some time. We got a message from a loyal listener recently asking why we haven't talked more about that. There is lots of discussion about this. The discussion about this tends to get quite toxic with some people online. The work that is being done here is about 
how do you create a situation where as few people as possible are on the minimum levels of payments and how do you create a situation where as many people as possible are in employment and if they need to have further supports that they get those supports in the form of rent assistance or other allowances. That's called the social wage. That's what Labor's investing in. So yes, there's been an increase in job seeker, but also changes to the eligibility for people to move onto single parent pension, for people to move who are long-term unemployed and older workers into the pension much sooner and to reduce their requirements uh, on them to do other forms of activity. These are all targeted changes. That's an important part of the economic management recipe. Then, of course, You've got the structural piece, which is about addressing supply chain. Over the last 26 years, we've had 20 years of conservative government. And during that time, not only has conservative government run down the institutions that we require to build up skills through TAFE, through public education, through universities, it's also allowed corporate Australia to be amongst the most lazy bunch of management in the world. They have not invested in training and education in the main. They have not supported people to have transferable skills. Instead, they have tried to import labour from overseas, often at a cheaper rate, often more easily exploitable. And this is not the fault of the workers. These are workers who are trying to build a better life for their families. These are the decisions made by corporations and governments to allow the hollowing out of Australia's national capacity. Jim Chalmers has talked about, as have other ministers, the rebuilding of Australia's national capacity. And of course, a shout out here from Brendan O'Connor, who's the Minister for Skills and Training, as well as Jason Clare, the Minister for Education, uh, but who are trying to make sure that we have a sufficiently well-trained and educated population to fulfil the needs of the future. Also, investing in our sovereign capacity. We've seen the Australian Foreign Investment Review Board reject some international takeovers to ensure that things like lithium remain in control of Australia. These are vital minerals for the renewable energy revolution. All of this is how you manage an economy. When we talk about economic management, that's what's required. Proactive interventions that have a measurable, tangible outcome. Jennifer Hewitt and the rest of the Spivs from the Boss's pamphlet don't like any of this. They hate this. They don't want economic management. They want government to get out of their way. What they want is government to say, here's some tax cuts, here's some loosening of regulations, off you go, go and make money. Someone I spoke with this week mentioned that They were in a meeting with a large number of bosses and lobbyists for bosses, and they were discussing the future of government policy. And we're going to talk about the same job, same pay, and reforms to casualisation shortly, because they were talking uh, about these issues, and these bosses' lobbyists couldn't understand what the problem was. Why was there a need for reform? Everything's going well. We're making so much profit. At the same time, Jennifer Hewitt from the Boss's Pamphlet is going on insiders saying that there are concerns about increasing wages. 
Now, Van and I talked on Wednesday about how the global narrative is starting to shift and there is an increasing level of understanding that the problem with inflation, not just in Australia but around the world, has been profiteering. Yes, there have been some supply chain issues. Yes, there have been some skill shortage issues. But primarily, the bulk of inflation has come about by greedy corporations fattening their margins. And people have said to me, well, Ben, if they were able to do that, why weren't they doing that before? Because corporations do what they can get away with. They do what they can get away with. And under the cover of media narratives and quote-unquote economists suggesting that there are problems with skill shortages and supply chains and that we are in ripe for a high inflation environment, corporations use that as cover to expand their margin. Now, what's happening, of course, is that there are still some holdouts. There are still some people who are desperately praying, they are literally praying that unemployment will go up, that the Reserve Bank will smash the livelihoods and the lives of hundreds of thousands of people by increasing interest rates more. When all it does, all it does is transfer wealth from the middle class, from the working class, to banks, to corporations, and to those corporations who are so gleefully profiteering. It's a disgrace. She should apologise. The boss's pamphlet, which has actually run a story acknowledging the global body of research which shows profiteering is the driving force of inflation, they should acknowledge that Jim Chalmers and what the Labor government is doing is actually managing the economy to bring down inflation while maintaining high levels of employment and lifting wages. And that's the bit, that's the bit that the bosses don't like, is that they're lifting wages, maintaining employment and lifting wages creating a situation where if bosses want to remain in business, they have to narrow their margin. And I'm not talking here about small businesses. I'm talking about the likes of Coles. I'm talking about the likes of Woolworths. I'm talking about the big suppliers to big chains. And we saw that recently, where workers from the United Workers Union won a 7% pay increase from a company that supplies to big supermarket chains here in Australia. Why did they win? Because they stood together, they took action, and they refused to be broken in the face of a narrative which suggests they are the problem. It is not the workers who are the problem. It is lazy management, and it is profiteering that is a problem. That is what is driving inflation. And Jim Chalmers is onto it. He's onto it. He's got a three-point plan. He's sticking to it. And you know what? Workers need to stand together. You can hear Germanicus agreeing, fervently agreeing in the background. By workers standing together and demanding our fair share, we can make sure that the costs of inflation are not borne by working people. That brings me to the same job, same pay, and forced casualization laws. We're going to see those introduced at some point this week in Parliament. These are absolutely vital to the future of the Australian workplace. We cannot have a situation where two people doing the same job for the same employer with the same skills and the same experience are getting paid different wages. And, you know, BHP really exposed themselves on this when they said this would cost them over a billion dollars a year. A billion dollars a year. Why will it cost them a billion dollars a year? Because BHP have 
have deliberately set up their own labour hire company, which they own, which they own, and which they use to undercut the wages of their own workforce. That is unacceptable. And what these laws will do is close those loopholes. You cannot be a casual. It cannot be in this country that you are called casual when you're given a year's worth of shifts in advance, told when you must be there, told the time, start time, finish time, break time, all the rest of it. And that is what is happening. That is what is happening. And it's unacceptable. It is totally, utterly unacceptable. And yet we have corporations in this country, in Australia, who are running TV ads trying to demonise Australian workers, trying to call Australian workers lazy for demanding the same pay for the same work when they have the same skills and the same experience. This is going to be an interesting, interesting debate because we've already seen the coalition come out and say that this is some kind of weird attempt to unionise by stealth. This is not... That is not how this works, right? The coalition and its big business mates continually try and paint the union movement and the Labor Party as some kind of secret relationship, as though we're running around behind people's backs having some kind of weird affair. The Labor Party is part of the Labor movement. It exists because of the Labor movement. The Labor movement includes unions, working people banding together in their interests to achieve policy outcomes that benefit them. And you know why that's a good thing? Because in a majoritarian democratic nation, working people are the majority. That's the reality. They are the majority of people. They are the majority of households. And even in retirement they are actually subject to the conditions which got them to that point in the first place. If you get to retirement age and you've had a terrible working life, you haven't had access to superannuation, there is no pension scheme, there is no affordable housing, then let me tell you, friends, you're going to wish you had more Labor governments. Now, what the coalition will do is it will continue to try and demonise these reforms, these sensible reforms that say, if you work regular hours, if you are doing the same shifts day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, then you are not casual. Now, you might decide you want to be classified as casual. And as I understand it, there's some flexibility there for individuals to make those decisions. But we should also remember that the mythology of casualization is that casuals get paid more, and they don't. They don't. The 25% loading has long been eroded by what is essentially a freeze on the base rate that gets paid to casuals. In most industries, for most workers, and you'll be familiar with this, dear listener, you get paid your base rate. Then you get some kind of penalty loadings. You might have some kind of allowances. Casuals usually get none of that. They get a flat rate with the 25% loading supposedly covering off all of that. Over the many, many years that this rot has been in place, that this loophole has gotten wider and wider and wider, that 25% loading has effectively been not just eroded and eaten into, but has now gone totally the other way with permanent employees earning 
hundreds of dollars more, hundreds of dollars more a week than casual workers doing the same job and the same number of hours in the same industries. There is no loading. Casualization, forced casualization, has become a cost-saving measure, just as forced labor hire has become a cost-saving measure for lazy, disingenuous corporations. And until, until they stop pretending that somehow or another the election of a Labor government doesn't give the Commonwealth a mandate to govern on behalf of working people and improve policies for working people, they will continue to be on the outside looking in. BHP has admitted they are effectively underpaying their workers by over a billion dollars a year but they're doing it legally. They're doing it legally because of the loopholes that have been created over two decades of mostly coalition governments that have allowed them to exploit their workforce. They're not the only ones, but they are the most strident. They they put they're the ones who put the numbers on the table. They're the ones who went to the boss's pamphlet and said this will cost us a billion dollars. Now, maybe this will become a second double dissolution trigger. Who knows? Of course, it's got to get through the Senate. Labor doesn't have the numbers there. It will rely on the support of the Greens and the crossbench because the the coalition under Dutton has already said that they will oppose any changes in this space. But of course, it's likely that there'll already be a double dissolution trigger because the Housing Affordability Fund will come back to the parliament this week. Let's be really clear here. The Greens have put this, punted this down the road to October. That's why Labor's bringing it back early. $1.3 million a day. $1.3 million a day worth of housing is not being built, is not being planned, is not being constructed, is not being moved into because of the Greens' decision. That's three to four new homes every single day. Now, in some parts of the country, that is a significant number of people who are missing out. And let's be really clear about this point. The Greens, even if they occupied the Treasury benches, that's what they call that side of the House when you're in government, the Treasury benches, even if the Greens were in government, they would not be able to implement the policy that they want Labor to implement because it is unconstitutional. It is unconstitutional. And they know it's unconstitutional. And they don't care because what they want is to campaign on it. They want to suggest that somehow or another, Labor is against renters. They're against the working class who are renting their homes. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is Labor governments across the country that is investing in social and affordable housing. It is Labor governments in places like Victoria that is staring down the Greens and saying, stop manipulating, stop lying to the one or two or three people who don't, for very legitimate emotional reasons, want to move out of their long-term social housing that they're in now into some other social housing while we build even more social and affordable housing on these sites that have not been properly designed in the past, that have not been properly utilised in the past, that will increase density, that will increase utility, that will be better for those people who are there now. Stop lying to those people. Stop telling those people that 
they're going to be somehow left out on the street. That's not what happens, in, but that's what the Greens want to make out is happening. What the Greens want to pretend is happening is that somehow or another, Labor is only interested in the landlord class, which is phenomenally, phenomenally outrageous for a party that is dominated by the landlord class, whose members in parliaments are in the vast majority of cases, landlords themselves. And yes, it's very clever to choose the young uh, young man from Brisbane, the what I like to call the NIMBY Prince of Brisbane, who won't have any housing developments built in Brisbane because apparently it's a floodplain. Newsflash, all of Brisbane is a floodplain. That ship has long sailed. We now have to deal with mitigation strategies and what we're going to do about that. We can't just stop building homes. But, you know, having the NIMBY Prince, who is, I believe, is actually a renter himself, front this campaign for the Greens is obviously very, very clever. But what's not so clever is denying three to four new homes every single day for months and months and months, and then suggesting that somehow or another it's Labor's fault. This could be a double-do solution trigger. And based on current numbers, Labor would rob home. He would smash Dutton's no-alition. And in fact, some of those green seats would be in danger, either from Labor or from potential Teal candidates. We should remember that in Brisbane, there were no Teals. The only place where the Greens managed to pick up seats in the lower house was where there were no teal candidates. Interesting fact. That's a reality. I know there are some Greens who don't like to hear that, but it is a fact and an observable reality. And they also went backwards in the Senate. So perhaps the Greens need to rethink that strategy lest they face a double dissolution. Now, the fifth point that I'm going to talk about is the voice. Lots of campaigning going on, train stations, phone calls, door knocks all around the country. The Yes campaign is mobilised. There's energy. There's enthusiasm. Of course, the No campaign is pretending somehow or another they're the victims. And we've seen Greg Sheridan today on Insiders. Greg Sheridan, once again, on can you believe this guy still gets a gig? I find it unbelievable. Anyway, Greg Sheridan basically has said that you can't call Dutton a racist if the referendum loses because that's the will of the people. Let me say this to you, Greg. What do you have when 10 Nazis and a non-Nazi sit down for dinner? You have 11 Nazis. Peter Dutton is on the side of Pauline Hanson. Peter Dutton is on the side of Pauline Hanson. Pauline Hanson is on the side of white supremacists who are voting no. Now, you can say Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price as often as you like. You can say Warren Mundine feels really bad about the criticism he receives. Warren Mundine, former ALP president who quit the party because he didn't get offered a seat, former Liberal Party member who lost the seat of Gilmore, is now, of course, running this no campaign. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there is a mental health toll for people running a campaign alongside racists. I'm sure that that takes a toll. Now, if I was campaigning alongside Pauline Hanson uh, against the will of 80-plus percent of the people who make up my culture, uh, 
I would probably feel very unhappy about that. But I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't choose to betray the 80-plus percent of Australians uh, who wanted a particular outcome. Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price have done that. They have made the decision that the 80-plus percent of Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, who want the voice are less important to them than to have the approval of Pauline Hanson and Peter Dutton and Rupert Murdoch and Andrew Bolt. Andrew Bolt, of course, has been found by a court to be a racist. We can sugarcoat these things as much as we like, and I know why the formal campaigns don't want to get into this kind of debate, but I think it's important we understand what's going on here. You don't have to be a racist to vote no, but all the racists are voting no. That's the reality, okay? You don't have to be a racist to vote no, but all the racists are voting no. Just like with marriage equality, you didn't have to be a bigot to vote no, but all the bigots voted no. That's the reality. Like, we can pretend all the other arguments you like, but at the end of the day, you got to pick a side. And whose side are you on? Are you on the side of Pauline Hanson and Andrew Bolt and the racists? Because they're voting no. Unequivocally, they are voting no. And you can say, oh, well, I'm voting no for different reasons. That you Have whatever reason you like, but that's the side you're on. I'm voting yes. The reasons I'm voting yes might be different to somebody else's reasons for voting yes. But I can tell you right now, there is no yes voter who is voting yes and believes that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people get too much support or that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are treated specially or that white people are somehow superior. There are no yes voters who hold those views, even though the no campaign likes to pretend that the referendum is somehow about apartheid or is in fact itself racist. These are nonsense arguments perpetuated by a campaign that is supported by and dominated by people who have, in some cases, been found by a court to be racist. So, yes, Greg Sheridan, we can call Peter Dutton a racist because, quite frankly, when you sit down with a table full of racists and agree on policy, then you have picked your side. You have picked your side. I would suggest to anyone who's contemplating voting no that you think about which side you're on. Which side are you on? That's the question you have to answer. Are you on the side of the 80-plus percent of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who want the voice, who want referendum to succeed, or are you on the side of Andrew Bolt and Pauline Hanson? Because those are the two sides. I don't make the sides, they make themselves. And I don't force you, dear listener, to pick one. But you must pick one. I don't get to pick which one you go to, but it's a binary choice. And you can rationalise whichever way you go, however you like. But those are the sides. Andrew Bolt, Pauline Hanson, the racists are voting no. You can rationalise that however you like, if that's the side you choose. Thomas Mayo, Noel Pearson, Marsha Langton, 
voting yes. You can rationalise that however you like, but you've got to pick a side. So the question remains, which side are you on? Now, there's going to be some noise this week. Of course, it's a parliamentary sitting week. Two key pieces of noise. The first, Rockingham by-election in WA. Great outcome for Labor. Already seeing the media spin this like it's somehow or another a bad thing for Labor. Unbelievable, unbelievable levels of spin. Mark McGowan was the most popular Premier in in Australia, and I say that as a proud Victorian, big supporter of Dan Andrews, but he was incredibly popular, and his margin was 37%. 37%. Now, his replacement has won it with 30%, a 30% margin, and somehow or another, the Liberals are trying to spin this as a victory for them. It's not a victory for them. The Liberal brand remains toxic. That noise will dissipate throughout the week. The other piece of noise that will happen is about Peter Dutton and the dodgy contracts that he signed off on when he was a minister. This has been around for a long time. Now, I know that there is a huge temptation to get into this, and I'm sure we'll share some social media about it too. But unless there are new revelations, Peter Dutton doesn't mind this kind of focus on him, by the way. He kind of revels in it. He kind of feels like it makes him a victim of wokeism, you know? Oh, well, of course, they just don't like the fact that we had Nauru operating at all. So, of course, they're attacking the contracts. That's his response, you know? If there is a NAC investigation, then let NAC do its work, You know, there'll be noise, there'll be colour and movement about this. I've told you what the five big issues are. The five big issues are education, inflation and economic management, industrial relations reform, housing affordability, future fund, and the voice. Those are the five things we need to focus on. Peter Dutton's personal wealth, which is, is quite large for someone who spent most of his professional life as a copper, seems very strange to me. I don't know how a copper's salary affords so many investment properties. I'm sure he has a perfectly reasonable explanation. All of that stuff is noise. Those five key issues, that's where working people's lives will be improved by improving policy on education, on economic management, on workplace relations reform, on housing affordability, and by making our country a place where we have 65,000 years of cultural history recognised in our constitution and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a say on the policies that impact them in housing, in education, in healthcare and in employment. Those are the things we need to focus on. Those are the things we need to win on. And if we do that in this coming sitting week, if we set ourselves up in this coming sitting week for wins down the track on those issues, then we will have a much better stronger and prosperous commonwealth for all of us so until wednesday when van will join me again for the week on wednesday remember be kind to yourself and to each other